Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and this podcast is a step-by-step action plan to help parents protect and prepare their children for the future. Thank you for joining us. This is episode number 21. And I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist, and kids media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. And if this is the first episode you're listening to, we want to tell you that each episode builds upon the preceding ones. So to get the most out of the episodes, we suggest that you listen to them in order. Also, as a guide for you, episode 1 through 8 provide important foundational information. And starting with episode 9, we begin to introduce specific tools and strategies designed to help you protect and prepare your children and family for the future. With the inner IQ, which stands for inner integral qualities, being introduced in episode 12. And we really recommend that you listen to all the inner IQ episodes if you can, because the inner IQ provides parents with an essential framework they can use to help understand and guide their children's healthy development. Now, in our last two episodes, we had a great conversation with Joe Clement and Matt Miles, two veteran award-winning teachers, and we discussed a number of important issues concerning technology use in schools today. In this episode, episode number 21, we'll be talking with author and parent coach Karen Locke-Kolp, and we'll be getting her valuable insights concerning her work with children and families. Karen is a child development expert and host of the podcast, We Turned Out Okay. Karen, welcome to Live Above the Noise. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. Well, we're so happy to have you with us. And to start us off, we want to ask you a question. In your work with parents and families today, you know, what are you seeing? What are families concerned about? What are parents concerned about? And what is your greatest concern? I'm seeing, and I think it's most concerning for me, a lot more anxiety on the part of both children and adults. And I think that it comes from, this is, this is of course, completely anecdotal, never done a study on it, but we have this real disconnect between our sort of real lives and our virtual lives. And we have and I'm including myself in here and my and my kids and family as well, we have an almost a sort of addiction. And even when we can identify it and say we have it, it's still a problem. So I have a tenon disorder. And one of the things that irritates my tenon disorder is the sort of things that we do on tablets, on phones, swiping, tapping, clicking, enlarging, pinching, you know what I mean, with your fingers. And I still get sucked down the rabbit hole of wanting to engage with my tablet that way. So if I'm going to, if I'll say to myself, I'm going to check email and 15 minutes later, my hands are sore. And it's like, I want to do a forehead smack because it's like, I knew this. (laughs) And yet I still couldn't stop myself, you know? Yeah. I think you're right on the money on that. And uh, I think we're all addicted. Uh, The planet's addicted to technology and obviously we need it. But um, I think that, I think what parents have a hard time understanding is to ba- is the balance necessary in, in time from tech and non-tech time. So I think part of the illusion today is is the uh, the necessity for technology when in fact we we do need it, but it's a, a very very different level than we're using it. 
question I would have for you is like, in your experience with parents, what percentage would you guess of the parents that you work with believe that they have to keep up with the changes in technology? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I'm not honestly sure if I would see it that way, if I can just move slightly to the side of that question, because I'm not sure that they think of it as keeping up. What I see is more parents who aren't focusing as much on, there's there's not as much sort of communication, meaningful communication in their family lives, or even, I mean, even with themselves. And so it almost, to me, it almost doesn't matter what they're doing online, except that, it, of course, it's drawing them on. So, for example, I'll just share about one family. I, I uh, Sometimes I'm really lucky and I get to go into families' homes if they live nearby. And this was one such case. Uh, it was, I think, a couple of years ago now. I observed a family, this family of four, husband, wife, and I believe a two-year-old and a three-year-old. And, you know, I was there in the house watching them from about five o'clock when they got, basically everybody got home until bedtime sort of should have happened. So we're probably talking four, four and a half hours. And in that span of time, I counted, I found one minute, one minute of time where there was some kind of meaningful communication going on between parents and children. One minute. And was it your perception that they realized this or were they not even aware that there was no communication happening? No, they were not even aware. What they knew was happening was they had no control. So kids are running through the house screaming. Uh, They are trying to bribe them to eat a bite of mac and cheese. Looking back on this, this night of interactions, the kids especially the younger one would try, he would try to talk to them. He would say something like, for example, uh, I down or me down or something like that. And what he wanted to do was he'd been locked in his high chair and he wanted to get down. And so he, he's looking around for somebody. They're all, they're chasing after the other child or some calamity is happening. And so finally he resorts to screaming and that's when he is heard and, and released. And they didn't even look at him. They just unclip, put him down. I don't mean that as a, I'm not trying to say that they were doing anything intentionally wrong. Like they were as confused as could be about the problems, but they didn't see it as stemming from a communication issue. They saw it as these kids are out of control. We just want our kids to respect us. And did you find that tied to technology in some way? Oh, yes. For several reasons. If the kids wanted to watch anything, I think this is very typical. You know, we hear about this in a lot. I'm just using these these people as an example because I got to really be in their house. A lot of parents, they'll put on the TV as the babysitter, and then they feel like they don't have to worry. But of course, if two kids are watching TV and they're feeling nudgy or hungry or tired or whatever, what they really need is some something that is a little bit more like stimulating in the physical sense than rather than just watching something on TV. They will nudge each other and they'll start to hit each other and they'll pull each other's, you know, blankets out of the way and they'll do things. And then the parents are not available to see what's happening. And then it's screaming and then there's punishments or timeouts or whatever. And, and sometimes a child would sort of whine and whine and whine until they got to watch something like, and basically the parents are like, okay, fine, you know, just to stop you, I will put this on. So there was a lot of it taken up in the kids watching. But then another thing that I really noticed was the parents would get caught up in their own devices. Mm -hmm you know, a bleep of a text would come through and there was about to be a moment we're all laughing because the Hulk got dunked into the pudding. But now I've got to go and check this thing that just beeped. So 
there were a lot of kind of intrusions on family time that likely needed to be dealt with, maybe not at that moment, but but we all have these things. You know, if your mom is texting you, you want to find out what that's about, right? And um, and then there was a timer. It was on one of the phones. And what would happen is one of the parents would say, okay, I'm going to set this timer for two minutes and then it's going to be time to get in the bath or time for dinner or time to get your pajamas on or whatever. And so they'd set the timer, put it down. And two minutes later, that thing is going off and there's no one around because some other calamity has happened in some other part of the house. So rather than saying, keeping track in your head, right? Saying, oh, in two minutes, it's going to be time to clean up. They were dependent on technology in a way that they really didn't have to be. I I hope that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That raises another question for me then, Karen, which is, Preparation and protection are two of the biggest things for a parent, the biggest things. How do you prepare the child? How do you protect the child? Do you think that parents today, based on your experience, have any idea how to prepare? I know protection is built in. That's like inherent that you protect. But preparation is a whole different thing. That's such an interesting way to look at it. And I do think that that in many cases, parents are struggling because, especially when you've got young kids, it's really hard to take the long view. So there's this expression that the the days are long, but the years are short. And so if, if you're in, if you're one of the parents who's in this really long day where um, you're putting out fires all day, you're not worrying about the future in one sense, because you're just like trying to get through this day, trying to get through this bath time, trying to get through this moment of now my child has upended their oatmeal all over the kitchen. And, you know, we tend to think that we have a lot more social support because we can get on Facebook and get some, you know, hugs or whatever. And, And a lot of times parents will feel really alone in their mothering or fathering. And what they're getting from the internet is a little bit more of like, look at how awesome my family is. I bet your family's not as awesome. You know what I mean? If if they're Instagram fans or whatever. And so they'll, they'll tend to feel maybe not, maybe they wouldn't put it into words like this, but I could see a parent because I used to do this too. I could see a parent thinking, how is this kid ever going to get along in the world? Like, how am I ever going to teach them anything? <laughs> and that leads to real anxiety and the anxiety is then communicated to the child. And there's this really vicious kind of cycle. And and I, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think what you're saying is that there's so much overwhelm day to day that long-term kind of planning is not that relevant. But if you, if you could get it down at least for parents to understand what's broken. And given the nature of change, how fast it's occurring and how much overload is occurring, there should be a way to say, okay, out of all the things that are going on around me and all the things I need to pay attention to, here's the critical thing. I um, I should say too, the first book that I wrote is called Positive Discipline Ninja Tactics. And I wrote it because that's the feedback that I was getting that parents needed to uh, to live above the noise, to be able to tune out the things that were extraneous. And once you start getting wins in your parenting life, like once, for example, one of the tactics I teach in there is called first then. And so what a parent would do is rather than, for example, set a timer on their phone, what they could do is they could say, first, it's time for, trying to think of a good one. So like 
first we're going to get on our shoes and go to the doctor. And then when we get home, you can keep playing with these Legos. So, so you can, I, I, I'm, I'm not good at thinking up an example on the fly, but, but there are these little tactics that school teachers use all the time that I thought would be helpful. And the feedback that I've gotten is that they, it is helpful. And what it helps parents do is get some control, establish some stability. And so they're not feeling quite so panicked. And that's really when they can look around them and go, okay, now I'm in a place where I can think about the future (laughs) in some positive way because their present life is much happier overall. And and I just, before I, I get away from that family for too, too long, I just wanted to say what I prescribed, quote unquote, for them was to spend 10 minutes each day, screen-free all together in what I called open-ended play, could be inside, could be outside, and to try and establish a way of, you know, positively connecting and communicating after a long day where everybody's been at school or work or whatever. And that was so helpful. When I went back and observed probably a month later, we had talked in the interim, but I went back and observed again. And it was a miraculous change. They were now spending more, much more than 10 minutes a day together in this way. Mm. You know, they still had their problems, of course, but like the children were thrilled and excited because they could say something to their parents and their parents could hear them and react. And there was a lot of eye contact and just a lot of joy. And um, it was amazing to me that just starting with 10 minutes could do that. And when you say open-ended play, could you explain that a little bit? So open-ended play is, is certainly in the U.S. A lot of times what we as parents think is the right thing to do is kind of the opposite of open-ended play. I'm going to sign them up for a class so that they will be taught how to do X, fencing, piano playing, gymnastics, whatever. And kids need a lot more time to just just see what's around them, become curious about something, pick it up, consider it, look at it, stick their hands in Play-Doh or finger paint or read books. So basically, I guess open-ended play would be, it's very child-directed. So we might put out some things, but whatever that child goes to, that's where we end up hanging out. And uh, sometimes it's great for them to play alone. Sometimes it's great for them to be able to look up and have another person there that they can, uh, you know, my kids used to make Play-Doh hamburgers all the time and I would pretend to eat them and then I would make them Play-Doh spaghetti and they would pretend to eat that. And it's play that goes on in our heads, but also in our physical bodies. And um, again, it can be like outdoor open-ended play is amazing. Just just going outside and seeing like, what does it smell like out here? If you look at your young child, they have incredible powers of observation and just stepping out of the house can be revelatory for a young child. And to try and be aware of that and watch it and also to build in that time because on the way to school or on the way to the doctor isn't the time when we can say, oh, sure, let's take a half an hour to explore the, the the frost that developed overnight or whatever. We can't do that then. We have to build in the time. Yeah, so it sounds like it's unstructured versus structured. Yes. They get enough structured school testing, all that type of thing. It's the unstructured. They get more than enough structure. <laughs> and you talked about something that makes me think of the whole idea of boredom. And I think personally that Being bored sometimes is really important because your mind is allowed to just kind of drift here and there. And we rarely seem to see people bored. 
Boredom now seems to be almost some sort of a crime or something. If you're bored for a second, it's like you've wasted time. Do you have any comment on that with regard to how families deal with boredom and suggestions you might have in that regard? Oh, I love this. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you're so right. I did, I think I did a, it was either a podcast episode or like a, a kind of a challenge in our Facebook group over the summer that had to do with how to handle it when your kids are bored, but but more how to bring on boredom. My idea was that um, we need more time to be bored because the act of being bored and having to figure out something to amuse us is crucial for our well-being as adults. Because if we grow into adulthood, not having had enough time to have the sense of, mm, I'm bored, what should I do? And then figure something out to do for ourselves that comes from our brain that is not outside input, if we don't have that developed by the time we're grownups, we're going to have a really hard time feeling, for example, not anxious. <laughs> because we're always going to be worried that, I think I would ca probably call it a generalized anxiety, but I think we need to be able to figure out how to get ourselves out of boredom without screens and, uh, and that's, that's a huge part of life. Um, and I would say, so I get the question, like, for example, I'm trying to think how this was worded because I thought it was so delightful. A mom was saying, like, how do I not be their party planner all summer? I've, I've got, uh, I don't remember, a second grader and a third grader, and they expect me to sort of come up with activities for them every moment of every day, and I don't know what to do about that. And I mean, the short answer is, if that's your situation, to be able to try and put it back on the kids a little bit and say, well, what do you want to do? And see what comes up, especially if you can say, oh, you know, but the TV's going to stay off or that we're, we're not getting into devices. So what do you want to do like in this world? <laughs> in our last podcast, actually, our last episode, we talked with uh, Matt Miles and Joe Clement, who are two teachers, and the episodes are called Screen Schooled. And they talk about, uh, this is high school kids, they talk about how it's rare to see somebody go to the, the washroom for three or four minutes without putting their headphones on. Or after a test is done, immediately the phones come on. So there's never that time alone in your own head. Yourself. And I know, um, Rob, you've got a number of things to say about that in terms of inside communication. Do you want to share a little bit of that? Well, I, I, that's my favorite topic because uh, my experience in my own life, as well as my work experience in evaluating people that I've worked with and hired people and people that are successful and even the latest research, I was just explaining uh, to Wayne earlier today that I came across uh, some new information uh, that was based on what makes companies successful and the people in companies. So it's it's a kind of future-wise, long-term perspective. But what I'm noticing about the people that are succeeding, the children that will succeed, is that they have both inside and outside communication developed. The people that will not have a chance to succeed will be the ones that have extreme development of outside communication and very little development of inside communication. And so what I mean, it's exactly 
what Wayne said, if I can't sit with myself quietly and listen to myself and plan for myself and amuse myself and understand my imagination and what I need and think about my own thinking, that's the inside side of that equation. If that's broken because of too much outside, that's that's huge. In my mind, it, it does not allow you to be choosing your future because you don't have the skills on the inner self of, of communication, the ability to think about your own thinking, what you need, what you want, what's good for you. You've lost that. So what you're going to do is lean to someone else. And I know we have a lot of people today that younger people that want to be entrepreneurs, but they don't have the inner communication. They have the desire to do their own thing, be autonomous, be independent. But when it gets down to, okay, in order to do that, you're going to have to have a set of skills, higher brain skills to pull that off. Do you have those two? And those are the inner communication skills. If you don't have them, you're not going to be able to do what you hope you could do. So that inner communication is huge. I love this point, Rob, so much. Like if you don't have, if you're not kind of developed enough in terms of your inner sense to be able to consult yourself and say, well, that's not what I want. This is a little bit more what I want. Like it was, I'm sure it was this way for you. For me, starting a podcast felt like taking a step off a great big cliff right and i knew what i wanted to do <laughs> so i i feel like for someone who it's a little more nebulous because they're not quite in touch with their inner selves it must be that much more of a scary scary prospect right and, and i work with a lot of millennials with one of my business partners and we're always talking about interns that come in from the college and they're 22 and they want to work and they want to understand the business and so forth. And he's been through maybe, um, I don't know, eight or 10 different interns. And it's the exact same pattern that happens because of the, the lack of inner training. Mm. They've all got great tech skills, but what breaks down is focus, determination, willpower, all those inner skills where you have to talk to yourself and understand what's going on that is short-circuiting your success and then be able to fix that. If you can't understand what that is and why it is that you cannot pay attention long-term or dig into a topic and say, I've got to do this and this and this and this and this and this. If you don't have that skill because you're going to say to yourself, wow, this is boring. This is hard. And I've experienced the same thing at the university level in classes, talking to students. Mm -hmm. It's too hard. It's too boring. It's That's huge in terms of a breakdown of very, very, very important inner skills. I believe it was in 2018, I had two early childhood professors uh, at different colleges, but in in California on my show. And they spoke of a crisis at the college level in terms of they were getting students into their classes who didn't know, for example, once one said they, they had a student who didn't know how to operate a screwdriver. Huh. So people who never played as children, all of their childhoods were spent sort of learning theoretical things. And so they didn't know how to interact with the physical world because they hadn't tinkered as kids. They hadn't had the chance of like sort of having that curiosity sparked and, and following that spark. And one of the stories that they told, they spoke of the California Jet Propulsion Lab. They called it the JPL. This is a place where like big engines are built. 
And so they hire people out of, you know, top universities in the the country and probably the world. And they were getting people from Harvard or other places that are MIT that were great on paper. But when they got there, they didn't know how to do anything with the engines. And I love this so much. The solution for that was to bring opportunities for play open-ended play to these new employees of the Jet Propulsion Lab. Isn't that cool? (laughs) Well, I think that's really interesting because parents probably see their kids play open-ended or not as simply a moment in time, a bit of play. But I think part of what we talked about just in the last few minutes is the fact that it's much more than that. It's really important to build what we call me communication into your kids. Without that, these developmental stages get missed or they get delayed, and it causes multiple problems along the way. So what seems like a very simple thing is your kid's future in some ways, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it's not going to be done at school. And that's why I asked you the question earlier about the protection and preparation, because I feel sorry for parents that rely upon school systems to provide the real skills, the inner IQ skills, not the IQ skills, because those are the ones that will allow somebody to succeed in the future and move into the future. And um, it's not going to happen in schools. They don't do that kind of preparation. So Karen, dealing with parents all the time, is there advice that you would give parents if you had to sum up some of what you've learned over the last number of years and say, this is some advice or some insights that I can give to parents in terms of, as we say in our podcast, live above the noise and also be happy or, or move towards a sense of well-being. What can you give parents in that regard? Oh, actually, I love this question. And I think what's neat about it to me is that we can talk about it in ways that like a lot of this gets into the inner IQ and it gets into some of the other wonderful things that you teach on this show. So, um, so stop me if you want and jump in if you want, but I I actually came up with like five, so we'll see if I can be succinct about them. (laughs) So the first one that I think of, and this I believe is the overarching challenge, but also joy of parenting, particularly parenting young children is to make meaning with them and to bring them in on your thoughts and encourage or listen anyway to their thoughts. You know, sometimes kids have the most mind-blowing ideas and we don't know that if we're not listening. So I always think about one of one of my kids used to say, like, he doesn't even, this was so long ago, he does not remember it anymore. When he was two or three, he would come up to me repeatedly and he would say, mama, where was I before I was here? And I would say, well, you were in my belly. And he would say, well, where was I before that? <laughs> I just, I, would, I, didn't, I guess I never had a good answer. We, and then we would talk about it. But he kept asking again and again, you know what I mean? Um, so making meaning with them, making eye contact with them even is so important because kids, all of their social skills come from the people around them. So a child, a baby, even a, a newborn will mirror what you are doing. They will try to engage you by giving you back your expression. And I mean, it's right from the beginning, human beings, even though we can't see it from the outside, they are trying their best to make meaning. And if we can 
give that gift to our kids. I mean, anything else that I would have to say takes a backseat to that, except that some of the other things are important because we can't be doing that all the time. It's not like sunshine and rainbows and kittens and smiles like 24 <laughs> So I guess some of the other things that I would recommend have to do with getting you to that point where you feel ready and excited about spending time with your child. So the second thing that I think of is when we are feeling anxious, it's really good. Sometimes we have this tendency to telescope out into the future. If we have a child right now who is smashing dishes, like we could think to ourselves, oh, my God, this kid is going to be a juvenile delinquent. Like, how is he going to get along in the world? And what I would say, what I and I say this all the time is look at what's right in front of you now. And instead of telescoping out into the future and think, like, how can I positively handle this moment of misbehavior or this moment of angst or tantruming on the part of my child, because there's a positive way to do it. And the more we can do that, no one's going to be perfect, but the more we can do that, the better. So that's, that's the second one. Karen, as you know, one of the nine integral qualities of the inner IQ is meaning. And so we're right there with you on meaning. Uh, Rob, did, did you have a thought on that as well? Well, no, that was that was exactly what I was thinking about. That's right, absolutely on target. And then the communication part of that was indirect in the sense of opening up what we talked about earlier to exploring that. You know, what what are the possibilities? Handing it over to the child to explore what's going on in their head. And so the combination of those two things of opening the door for you to find out the meaning that your child is placing on whatever the questions are is beautiful. And that allows for then a whole feedback loop to explore that. So you're right on the money with me. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. It's going to be some kind of feedback loop, isn't it? It'll be positive or it'll be negative, but there's going to be something. And yeah. we can't help but model. So let's think carefully about what we're modeling, right? And number three? Number three is even in the midst of terrifying or terrible days or terrible twos, find something to be grateful for. And I've not lived with a tenant disorder for eight years without, this is a, this is probably secondary to like physical therapy and psychotherapy. Um, gratitude has been like a, a real, a joy, but also an instrument of healing for me. Um, I, every night, even if I can't write them, I will say to myself five things I'm grateful for from that day. So I, I've been asked frequently, actually, like, how do you parent in difficult circumstances? So I, I've talked to people who are single parents or who have lost their house or who um, are, are just going through something really terrible. You know, if they've lost a loved one or or if they've been diagnosed with something and how do they get through that? And so I say I recommend gratitude as a tool because not only does it help in the long run, but if you can think like, that's a pretty nice sunset that I'm looking at, it takes you out of your own chains in your own sadness for even if it's just a moment, like it's one less moment that you're spending in a bad place. And we all have the capacity to do that. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a beautiful self-reflective exercise because you're essentially reframing your day. And that in itself, that ability to take a day that may have been hectic or chaotic, and you actually turn it into a different type of day, that's a skill. That's a beautiful skill. And if you could do that about different parts of your life, if you had a disease or if you were sick or if someone died or you had terrible things happening, 
You know, the best minds on the planet know how to do that. They can reframe events in their life and turn that around. And that's exactly what that is, is, you know, in terms of how I see that, the gratitude thing. Well, I think that's also directly related to something we've talked about a a couple of times on the podcast, and that's time design and the ability to shift a certain type of time. And in this case, it might be toxic time into a new type of time, and that would be enrichment time or inner time. I love when you guys talk about that. That ability, even for a few minutes, to be able to shift it from one thing to another is exactly what you're really talking about. And it can't help but make your life better, even in a small way. And those small shifts can sometimes have large consequences. Yeah, they really add up. They really do. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, and I, I think a lot of people don't understand that you have the ability to to talk to yourself differently at any second in time. So it's all about what you're saying to yourself. It is the ability to to think about your thinking and then reframe whatever is negative or isn't going to work into something different right away. As fast as you can do it, as fast as you can catch it, you can change it. So that's beautiful. And insight number four for our audience? So insight number four is, is really hard to do any of the things that we are talking about without some me time, what I think of as me time. I have a friend who, um, I love this expression. Uh, she used to say, my alone time is for your safety. Sorry, <laughs> 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 it was a joke. But we need time to be able to, even if it's just a, a little bit of time, particularly at first, because it becomes easier to find that time once we're like, oh, actually, that's really good. You know, but, but can you um, read a book or or go for a walk, or spend some time with a friend, or do something that feeds your soul. And I I was just thinking about this. Um, A lot of the the issues that in my private coaching community that parents will bring up, when things are really going sideways, a parent will say like, we've just had this string of horrible days, and I don't know what to do. And I will invariably say something like, you know, how's the me time? How's the self-care? And they're like, oh, yeah. I need some of that. Great. And number five, I love this one. Maybe other than the first one, it's maybe my favorite one out of uh, you know these points because it's the gift that keeps on giving. And that is, even if today has been horrible, even if you said a million things that you regret and you feel awful and dinner was terrible and everything else you can think of, um, you can always try again tomorrow. And so to be able to say, all right, I'm going to say that this was today and we're putting it to bed. I'm going to try again tomorrow to positively discipline or to make a connection with my child that feels meaningful for me or to get that me time. You know, I'm going to try again tomorrow and it's okay to do that. Yes. We need to do that. Beautiful. I notice that you sometimes talk about don't be so hard on yourself as a parent. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think parents many times fall into the idea that you know, they're not the perfect parent and, and other people are doing better and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I thank you for the opportunity. I think this is so important. I see it in my own life um, and I see it with the people that I that I teach and work with. We, no one else can forgive us. <laughs> so for example, um, this fall, I, I was basically in training. So this tendon disorder has affected my driving leg and Uh, We have a child who goes to school, a school that he loves so much, and it's about 45 minutes to an hour each way to get him there and to get him home. And I 
I thought I was going to be able to do that like three days a week and I have not been able to do it even one day a week. And so the temptation is there for me to just beat myself up, even though my child, my husband, the teachers, everyone around me is saying, you know what, first of all, it's not your fault. And second of all, it's okay. We will figure this out. So I beat myself up about it for probably a week or two. And it was starting to affect my, because stress affects my, my tendons. So the other tendons are now kind of going offline and I'm not sleeping well and everything. And then I thought, you know what? I got to practice what I preach here. It is not fair for me to say to somebody else, forgive yourself and then forget to forgive myself. We are the only people who can do that for ourselves. And it's really, really, really important. I feel like it's another way of putting positivity into the world because there's enough negative feelings. And I feel so much happier when I can look around and say, this is okay. I'm not going to be that hard on myself. And it also you can see somebody visibly relax. Like if I'm in a Zoom call or something with a, with a coaching client and I say, this has been really hard for you and I can see that and it's okay to try again tomorrow. It's okay to forgive yourself. I've had people dissolve into tears when I say that because they're like, really? Like it's really okay for me to let this burden down? It's more than okay. It's so important and it's so good to do. Well, that is excellent advice and thank you so much for that, Karen. And just to finish off this episode, is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? Definitely. There's something that I thought of before and didn't get a chance to kind of interject it. Um, it gets back to the idea of, I, I guess, digital clutter is what, I, is what I would think, sort of file it under. I read a book. Actually, I didn't read it. I skipped right to the end because I found it terrifying. It was called Homo Deus, and it's about the future and where this author kind of sees humanity going. And I decided I don't want to, I can't read about all of the ways that we're broken, but I'm going to go to the end and see, does he have any thoughts on the future? And one of his thoughts was that it used to be that censorship meant keeping information back. Like you would censor someone by not letting them have access to the, to all the information, right. Or to any of the information. And in the future censorship, and this is now, Censorship is being flooded with so much information that you don't know what to pay attention to. And so for us to be able to choose what we are going to focus our energy on and put our mind to, I think this is so, so, so important. And it might feel a little bit daunting, but if we can look at it in a positive sense and think, okay, I'm saying no a lot more so that I can understand what I want to say yes to and, and what's going to be good for my child and for me going forward. Um, the idea that censorship is being flooded with so much information you don't know what to pay attention to and that we have to really focus in. Otherwise, we're going we're gonna to miss it all. I'm right with you on that. I would say that, and I've been really paying attention to this for years now, saying, because a lot of people ask me, hey, Rob, where is this going? What do you predict three years out, five years out? And I really don't know, but I can say this, that we do not have the capability to keep up with the amount of information. So when you have tech media and consumerism, the, I call it the power pact of three dimensions like that, three forces banding together to sell you stuff, to, to give you more and more and more information. If you don't have a filter, yeah. just imagine a year from now. And so everybody wants into the game. Everybody's trying to sell you something and the information is flooded. And there's no way, no way the human brain can match the escalating, accelerating information input. So where does that leave you? Mm -hmm. That leaves you with one or two things. That's all. 
One thing is that you better have a filtering system like you just mentioned. And the second thing is you better have inner communication so that you can talk to yourself instead of them talking to you. And with those two things, that's my biggest concern for youth. Yeah. That you're tra- you're training the inner communication and you're also training the filtering system for youth. And when Matt and Joe, you know, from the screen school talk about a child not being able to go to the restroom without putting earbuds in, and you ask that same question about them. Can they be quiet? Can they listen to themselves? Do they have the filters? No. And that that's a big, 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 big problem because Without that, I don't know where this goes with information overload in the future. Well, and of course, that's the whole heart of, you know, our podcast is the Choiceful Family Project. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes people may look at the title and, and wonder why we spell it the way we do. We spell it choice-f-u-l-l, full. And in the first episode, we talk about exactly what you're talking about, which is people are becoming choiceless. Noise, which we define as distraction, distortion, disruption, and overload, is causing us to become choiceless. There are so many choices. We're so confused by them. We're so overwhelmed by them. And what we call the cycle of noise that we become choiceless. We're losing that. And so our whole idea of becoming choiceful is to have the capacity to choose the right things, to, to have the the ability to make full choices that are going to benefit you. And that's why it's so important. And so many of the things that you touched on today are in the realm of how you do become more choiceful. So thank you so much for that, Karen. Oh, it has been my pleasure. And for all our listeners, we encourage you to listen to Karen's podcast and find out more about her work by visiting her website, weturnedoutok.com. And in the next episode, Rob and I are going to be talking with Gene Rogers. Gene is a family screen time specialist, the author of the book Kids Under Fire, and the director of the Children's Screen Time Action Network. You won't want to miss this episode. And just as a reminder, you can listen to us and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and many other podcast providers. So until the next episode, thank you for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes, tips and tools, and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.